You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church Resources. This is David Roark, producer of the show and sometimes person on the show. The Adams are off planting churches this week, so it's just me and special guest Ryan Williamson. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well. How are you, David? I'm doing well, as well. Well, in this episode, (laughs) we're going to chat with our friend Sam Alberry on the topic of singleness. He just wrote a book called The Seven Myths About Singleness, which is getting a lot of buzz and is really, 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 really good book. Um, Both Ryan and I have read that, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about the topic of singleness, and by we, I mean we're going to be chatting with Sam Alberry, who is a subject matter expert on such things, um, and he just wrote this book. But before we kind of jump into that conversation, Ryan, why do you think, why would we, Culture Matters, we've already done one episode on online dating, and you were a part of that episode, which was cool. Why do another episode on singleness? Why is this important from your perspective? I think it's something we just forget to talk about a lot for one thing. We can focus on a lot of conversations about marriage and family, which are both good um, good and right things, but singleness, I think, kind of gets pushed to the wayside. And when we do have those conversations, I think they've just been mishandled in the past or just a topic that's not fully thought through by a lot of people. And so I think spending a little bit of time talking about it and whether you're married or single is beneficial for for everyone, for the body and yeah, I agree. I think that um, on the one hand, it's a topic that we don't chat about um, all that often, yet it's it's super pertinent. It's all over culture. It's a big thing. And so it wouldn't make sense that we wouldn't talk about it from that standpoint, this being a podcast about culture. But also, this is a huge part of our audience, not just like our local churches here at the village, but you know, this podcast, You know, there's a good group of people who listen to it who are single so I think it just, for both of those reasons, I think it makes a lot of sense. And the Bible gives us a really helpful framework for how we see singleness, how we interact with singles, how singles interact with other people. Um, it gives us a vision for singleness. And um, Sam, there's really no one better, in my opinion, um, who can kind of help us understand that and uh, give us language and give us really good thoughts and ideas about that. Um, so I'm looking forward to that conversation if you don't know who Sam is, Sam Alberry is an author, pastor, and speaker for Rabbi Zacharias Ministries. He also serves as an editor for the Gospel Coalition, and he's a visiting professor at Cedarville University. He's now written three books, Is God Anti-Gay, which is great, Why Bother with Church, which is great, and his latest is Seven Myths About Singleness. Looking forward to this conversation with Sam. Hey, how are you doing? Can you, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I think so. I'm looking at our... Uh, Audio engineer right now. Uh, he seems to we be uh, we're able to hear you well. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And what I'm going to do is set up a quick time audio file, um, so I can record the conversation from here and then send that through. Okay. Sam, I wanted to just start the conversation uh, talking about the concept of singleness. Obviously, this book is about singleness. Um, 
you in the introduction really define singleness biblically, which I think is important because in that our idea of singleness as the church in many ways contrasts the view of singleness of popular culture. Can you talk about that? What's the difference between a Christian view of singleness and the quote unquote world's view of singleness? Yeah, the the world's view of singleness is is quite different, I think, because if we're talking just about being unmarried, then our culture is quite positive about that. Uh, marriage for some people is seen as a as a constraint, as a uh, too much of a commitment, um, and therefore being single can mean you have the opportunity to play the field. You can be available to different types of romantic partnership, all that kind of stuff. So people, I think, in our culture are positive about singleness in that sense. The biblical sense of you, as you've intimated, is different because we're not just talking about being unmarried. We're talking about being unmarried and celibate. Um, we're talking about being uh, being chaste in our sexuality. And so we're not just saying we are single, but we're single and sexually abstinent because our, our conviction of sex is purely for marriage between a man and a woman. So singleness in that sense by our culture is viewed with uh, a mixture of utter scorn and deep concern. I think people assume that kind of singleness is kind of comical at best and probably dangerous at worst. And to to not give expression to your sexual feelings, to your romantic desires, a lot of people would say is is actually harmful to you and may and may make you harmful to others. Um, and so it's just not a healthy way to live. Yeah, you, you use the you use the example of a forty year old virgin in the book, and yeah, it's almost as if uh, the world's view of singleness would uh, would view our our perspective as uh, something that would rob someone of flourishing and joy, right? Exactly. So you're actually diminishing the significant part of your humanity, um, and and leading a, a, a kind of shriveled existence. You're not you're not being your true authentic self. Having a um, sort of a framework now for a biblical view of singleness, I would love to just kind of get into the misconceptions or myths that um, you debunk in this book. Um, And I'd like to start with uh, the myth, which you start with, which is that singleness is too hard. Um, Can you talk about what you mean by that? And uh, it's interesting because later in the book, you go on to talk about how difficult singleness can be. So how do those two things interact? Yeah, I think people, uh, I talk about singleness being perceived as being too hard simply because in our culture and therefore sadly in our church, we tend to assume that a lack of romantic fulfillment, a lack of any kind of, you know, having a partner, we see that as being, um, as actually being a bit of a deal breaker. It really is impossible to lead a full life without some kind of romantic fulfillment. So people assume singleness is too hard on that basis. Whereas the New Testament says actually that isn't the issue. Um, Paul's comments about singleness are that in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about it, it actually gives us amazing opportunities for ministry, but it also spares us some of the particular trials that would come our way if we were married. So it's not difficult in the ways we assume it will be, or at least it shouldn't be, 
But it is nevertheless difficult because life in a broken world is difficult. And there are particular ways in which being uh, biblically single is going to present challenges, is going to have its own unique heartaches and difficulties along the way. So it's it's not easy, but it's not this kind of unbearable sentence of leading a, a shriveled existence that people often assume it is. One of the things you talked about in like two different chapters, um, so they're kind of related in some ways and kind of not, would be like intimacy and sexuality. So can you just kind of talk about how the ways that those are related when it comes to singleness, the ways they're different, are we missing out on something, is there something that we're being robbed of as single people when it comes to those things? I think so. In our culture, intimacy and sexuality are pretty much the same thing. Um, in the Bible, I think they're quite different categories, and the Bible gives us a much broader um, definition of, of intimacy than our culture does. So the Bible certainly shows us that whilst we can live without sex, we're not designed to live without intimacy. But the intimacy we can experience is going to be non-romantic and it's going to be through things like deep friendship and a sense of rich community life in the local church especially. Um, so that, that will mean that we are able to experience that sense of being known, of being loved, of being part of the lives of other people. But in a way which would, will have nothing to do with our sexuality. Um, and so one of the critiques we, we therefore occasionally hear is that by, by living that kind of single life, you are somehow, um, you're ignoring your, your sexuality, you're not honouring it, you're not fulfilling it, you're just kind of treating it as, as something that doesn't need to be attended to. And one of the things I'm, I'm trying to show in the book, actually, is that singleness is actually a very good way of fulfilling our sexuality. Um, because that the deeper, broader purpose for our sexuality in the Bible is, to, is for it to be a signpost to the, the deeper yearnings and need for connection that we have with God. And therefore, the way to fulfill our sexuality, whether we're married or single, is to allow those sexual desires those romantic longings to speak beyond themselves and to push us deeper into our our relationship with Christ so actually we can fulfill our sexual um, we, we can we can fulfill the purpose of our sexual feelings without actually um, indulging those actual desires if that makes sense but allowing those desires to to point us to the depth of communion that we, we, we need with Christ and that we will have in its fullness in the age to come. Yeah, Sam, in the, there's in, a, in the appendix of the book, just why we're talking sort of about sexuality and intimacy, you give some tips um, on how to overcome sexual sin, especially for singles. While we're kind of on this point, can you talk about some of those things? Because I think that a lot of people listening would shake their heads and agree to what you're saying. But then, as you know, as anyone would know, the <laughs> the struggle is is real and everyone feels how difficult that can actually be on the ground. Intellectually, we can get behind it as Christians. But what are some some tips or some ideas that you would have for really anyone? Because, uh, you know, to some degree, we're also supposed to be sexually pure, whether you're married or single, but especially for singles, can you talk about some ways to overcome sexual sin, temptation, those things? Yeah, there are many 
um, wonderfully, many ways we can overcome. And in the book, I focus on Proverbs 5. That's been a passage I've I've really benefited from, from spending time with over the years. Uh, and it's just so practical. And one of the, the key things Proverbs 5 tells us is you, you don't want to learn the hard way at how destructive sexual sin can be. And it will never deliver what it's promising. And I, I love the realism of, of the letter to the Hebrews where it talks in chapter 11 about the fleeting pleasures of sin because sin is pleasurable. Um, we wouldn't be tempted by it if it wasn't, but it can only be pleasurable in a way that's fleeting. It never gives lasting joy. It never gives lasting satisfaction. It can, it can present a form of temporary relief, um, a feeling of temporary elation, but it, it also it always takes away far more than it gives, and that that for me has been a helpful point to remember because there are times when sexual temptation can be very acute and it can feel as though you can't possibly live without fulfilling these desires, and so it's good to think actually if I was to fast forward through the other end of this process, I would see more mess, more brokenness, more heartache, more grief, more despair as a result of this sin than I will ever see as a, you know, if I, if I say no to this temptation. So that, that for me has been, has been one thing. There are other ways we can fight it. I've, I've often drawn in my own life on, on Romans six and the fact that our relationship to sin has, has changed. It's not our master now, which means it, it doesn't call the shots. Um, we're used to obeying it. We're used to doing what it says, but actually we don't have to now. Um, it doesn't have authority over us. And so it's great for me to think, even if the, the pull towards sin can feel very powerful, I never have to sin. I never have to sin. Um, my master is Christ. And so that, that again is liberating. I don't sadly live as consistently in the light of that as I wish I did. But it just reminds me that there is not an inevitability to sin that it often feels like there is. Um, it can feel often like it's it's so ingrained within us that we're never going to change, we're never going to get through this, and that's just simply not true. Um, so that that helps me as well. There are lots of wonderful um, strands in, in the Bible we could pull out on this, but those are two that I, I repeatedly come back to. Yeah, and I think that, that first part is so key too in... Um we remind each other of that often here, but it's, you know, that God doesn't have this design, these parameters, these rules just for the sake of having them, but it is ultimately for our joy and to save us from sadness and despair. And, um, you know, I can attest as just so many relationships I have with friends who have suffered the consequences of, you know, not remaining pure and, and that's, and it affects marriages. It affects things long down the road, um, it's, it's really that long game versus the short game. I think that the temptation to fall into something, um, in the now, but, um, the decisions we make. Yes. Temptation, temptation makes us look at things in a very immediate kind of way. And it, it doesn't show us the wider and longer repercussions and, you know, things that aren't directly related but are indirectly affected by our sin. It just causes havoc in so many directions. And 
we think, oh, well, it's just what I do with my body. It's not going to affect anybody else. But actually, it affects, it affects so many other things. It drags other people into to mess and yeah it, it the bible gives us that wider angle lens on what what is really going on um sam can you talk about that you know when people say that singleness is a gift i know from my experience that can be a quick way to frustrate me i think i've learned a lot about what that actually means but can you can you talk about what you talk about in the book when you talk about the bible truly calling singleness a gift and you know how that can be a good thing yeah, it's it's something that Paul mentions in in First Corinthians seven verse seven. He talks about he says, "I wish all were as I myself am, i.e., single." But he says, "But God has given each person their own gift, one of this kind, one of another kind." So he he seems to be talking there about marriage and singleness both being gifts, and not everyone is given the gift of singleness. Some are given the gift of marriage. So that tells me singleness is itself. A gift. It's intrinsically a good thing. Um, I think one of the things we've we've done is we've taken the language of gift of singleness and we've taken it from being the state of being single to our perceived capacity or otherwise to cope with being single. And so some people talk about the gift of singleness as though it's a special kind of empowering that only some people receive in order to be able to cope with being single and the trouble with that is it it then makes everybody else feel as though well i'm single but i don't have the gift of being single so that's that's pretty mean of god um and some people have even then justified unbiblical relationships on the basis that well i don't have the gift of singleness and the only relationship that's available to me is is one that's disobeying god but it's his fault because he's not giving me the gift of singleness so I think it helps us to realise that the state of being single and the state of being marriage, those are intrinsically good things. They are gifts. That doesn't mean they're easy, just as the purpose of spiritual gifts later on in 1 Corinthians is not to fulfil us, but to be a means of blessing to others. Singleness is a gift in the sense that it's an intrinsically good thing given to us by God in order to be a blessing to other people so that we can use our our marriage or our singleness as a gift to others. Um, it may not feel like a gift to me right now, but in God's goodness and under my stewardship, my singleness should feel like a gift to other people. Um, so that's, I think that's the, the, the way we're, we're supposed to think about these things. Yeah. Is there, is there a takeaway to here for not just teachers and pastors in the church, but just everyday brothers and sisters in the church, because I think I, if I'm being honest, I've caught myself maybe saying or telling someone or reminding someone that singleness is a gift. Yet I often catch myself always wanting to ask that person who they're dating or trying to set them up. Or, um, I've heard in churches, you know, it's marriage is talked about so much, sometimes as if it's an idol and family as an idol, that it's like, well, you're saying that singleness is a gift, but it sounds like you really don't believe that. Do you do you find that to be true a lot? And is there something we can kind of learn from that as the church? Yeah, I think that is generally true. And it's um, we're, we're trying to do several things at the same time. We're, we're trying to we're trying to honor singleness. We're trying not to demean it or imply that it's a, a lesser way of of being a Christian than to be married. We are also trying to reflect that the the reality that I think that the plan for most people is to be married. That's, I think that is the norm in the Bible. 
Um, so we don't want to imply um, that marriage is unusual or anything like that, but we don't want to sort of reflect marriage as the norm in a way that creates a sense of expectation that everyone is supposed to get married. Um, most people likely will get married, most not all, and we want to articulate that in a way that honours the single person, doesn't imply there's a set expectation, you're not letting down the team by not getting married. Um, so we want to honour marriage and sing on this at the same time, I think, and that's that's not always easy to do. And we want to reflect on the goodness of marriage without without making it an alternate thing. And ditto with, with the nuclear family to, to celebrate the fact that children are a gift from the Lord, that marriage is a gift from the Lord, without implying that those gifts are somehow ultimate. And if you don't have those gifts, you really have missed out on the you know some of the key things of life in this world. Um, so I think the way we, I've, as a pastor, I've you know, I've sometimes wanted to ask someone what their plans are, whether they're seeking to marry or not. And that the best way I found of doing this without sounding like there's a set expectation behind the question is to say, do you feel pressured to get married? Um, because that helps me see that it just it just raises the issue, I think, in a more neutral way and enables them to say, well, actually, I do feel pressured, but this is what I'm up to at the moment, or I don't feel the pressure, but this is what I'm hoping for. And it just seems to me to be a, a non-loaded way of, of broaching the issue which doesn't imply that you're looking for a very specific answer. And the same would go for talking to married couples who don't have kids. Again, the question can often be phrased as, when are you going to have children? And if a couple are, are, are struggling desperately to have children, that can be a very painful question. So again, I think a, a more neutral way of raising it is to say, you know, do you feel a pressure to have kids? Is that something you're praying for or, you know, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's... That's really, really helpful, actually. Just the the nuance in the question there, the change. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about yet, Sam, and this is huge in your book, and I know it's a huge part of your ministry, um, is just the concept of family as it relates to this discussion about singleness. And I'm not talking necessarily about the nuclear family, but the family of God and the church. Um, what are the... Can you talk about why this idea is so important to any discussion about singleness and, and maybe even about friendship as well? Because And I think those two things are, are very related. They are, and it's a huge issue. The reason it's a huge issue is because the, the New Testament is full of family language to describe our relationship with with other Christians that we we belong to in the local church. So, again, I think we've we've taken the concept of family and applied it exclusively to the nuclear family and neglected the, the, the way in which actually it should apply to our, our local church congregation. And we often use the language of family to describe our churches. We often speak in ter terms of the church family. But I think we tend to use the language without actually unpacking what we're saying and without making it a, a reality. Um, so I think that the New Testament is calling us to be brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters to one another within the life of the local church in such a way that even if you don't have your own nuclear family, you should still nevertheless feel as though, actually, you have an abundance of family simply by virtue of belonging to this body of believers. 
Um, that's the expectation Jesus gives us in places like Mark 10, 29 and 30, where he promises those who have to leave family behind for the sake of the gospel. He says we'll receive a hundredfold in this age. Um, again, Paul talking about the, the, the church being the, the household, the family of God, um, the, the frequent references to brothers and sisters. Those are all meant to be speaking of an actual lived reality. And so one of the things we need to work harder at is fostering, celebrating, facilitating, promoting, preaching up the whole concept of a friendship uh, within the life of a local church. It shouldn't be the case that you only experience a deep sense of, of being known, a deep sense of, of deep relationship if you're married. And I've heard too many pastors say, well, if someone is single there, you're making them live a life without love. I always think if that's the case, you're saying basically that in your church, you can only live a life of love if you're married. So I think we, we probably need to, each of us in our own churches, think through whether we are being family in the, in the fullest sense that the New Testament is calling us to, and whether there are, there are things we can do institutionally at the corporate level that will better um, facilitate that, will better promote that concept. Otherwise, what tends to happen is church becomes basically a collection of nuclear families and then single people are, are not really feeling part of things. Right. And, you know, I've seen that a lot in my experience. And one thing in your in your book that stuck out to me was kind of the practical conversations about how this looks for you as a single person being involved in the lives of families and how families can kind of reorient how they go about their weeks or just little things to incorporate their friends who might be single um, can you just talk about a little bit more about that, about the practical ways to, you know, that you can be involved in family life as a single person? Yeah, and it's a two-way thing. So one of the dangers is the single people think, well, here I am, everyone needs to notice me and reach out to me, and the onus is entirely on the families to do that. Um, I think it's a two-way thing. I think all of us in the New Testament are called to practice hospitality, to open up our lives, our homes if we have them, and involve other people in our lives. And that's a two-way blessing. So it's not the case that every family needs to adopt a single person as a little outreach project. It is the case that we're all meant to be living a living kind of lives of blended family within the local church. And as we do that, we begin to realise it's, it's just a win-win because as other people are more involved in the life of your nuclear family, you are you're benefiting from that. Your kids are seeing up close other worked examples of the Christian life. They're seeing um, other people who believe the same things and commend the same things as their own parents do. Uh, single people benefit because it, it gives us a, a way of, of being involved in the lives of others. It's, it's, um, it's a sweet thing for me when, when friends will... Ask me if I want to do the, the prayer and Bible time with their, their children at, at bedtime. And that's a sweet privilege to be involved in those sorts of things. So it, it should actually help all of us. All of us are designed by God to need that sense of extended, wider family in the local church, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we have kids, whether we don't, whether we are younger, whether we're older. All of us need that. And so 
the traffic has got to be two-way on this and it's a responsibility for all of us to be thinking how can I serve all the other people around me particularly those who are maybe in a different demographic to me or in a different different life stage to me and in God's economy we all win because we're a body and when we serve the other parts of the body it helps all of us and it's a it's a sweet thing when that happens yeah i think that's that's really important sam one one kind of question to land the plane here um at the end of the book you talk about how you originally set out to write a book about the goodness of singleness but you found yourself more and more compelled and wanting to write about the goodness of god i think that's a great place to kind of end our conversation what did you mean by that as it relates to this conversation, why why the importance of the goodness of God versus the goodness of singleness? Not to say that those things are pitted against one another, but why start there? Well, uh, yeah, and it, it's been a it's been actually a really um, encouraging journey to go on in the, in the course of writing the book. Um, it's not that I didn't believe in the goodness of God before it; it's just seeing what the Bible says about singleness, and by correspondence what the bible says about marriage you can't really think about one without thinking about the other um and by the way the reason there are myths of singleness the reason there are misunderstandings of singleness is because we've misunderstood marriage as well um but as i saw both of those things in a in a a more biblical perspective as i saw how each was you know each uh, relates to the gospel it just kept reminding me of the goodness of god um, so it's just reminded me that my contentment isn't meant to be primarily, I've got to be content in the singleness in the sense of thinking singleness is the best thing ever and I couldn't ever want anything different or more. It's actually, I need to find my contentment in Christ as a single person, because if my contentment is in Christ, then actually I can see his goodness and sufficiency in singleness and if I become married, I can see his goodness and sufficiency in the context of a marriage as well. Um, but the key thing is to see the goodness and sufficiency of Jesus himself. Because whether we're single or married, there are going to be problems. Each has its own unique, particular challenges. Neither is going to be necessarily easy. Um, but both become means by which we can taste the goodness of God and if we have the eyes to see it and the, the taste buds to, to taste it, we can actually see more of God's beauty in our singleness and more of God's beauty in our marriage. Thanks, Sam. Um, again, for, for those listening who haven't read the book, it's Seven Myths About Singleness. Sam, thank you so much for your time. You're just always so wise. All the ways that you've served our church and um, helped us create resources from when you were back here for the forum several years ago, and you did a podcast at that time, and then we caught up with you last year at a conference, and you did some videos for us. You are just, God has given you a gift, um, the way that you understand the scriptures and the way that you can talk about them in a clear and gentle but firm way. It, it's, a, it's a gift, and it, it serves us, and I know it serves many, many people, so we're just really grateful for you and grateful for your willingness to just take the time to, to be with us today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, and I'm, I'm grateful for you guys. I'm, I, I use the, the resources of, of TVC all the time, so thanks for all that you're doing. Of course. All right, well, you have a good day. Thanks, Sam. 
If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website. Today's episode was produced by me, David Roark. Hello. And edited and mixed by Christopher Starrett. See you next time. God bless. <laughs>